You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, good morning, everyone. Glad you can join us. And uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 19 today. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand up high. We have Bibles for you. These men coming up the aisles here have a Bible for you. Just raise your hand up, flag them down. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, consider that a, a gift uh, right from the Lord. Psalm 19 today. <clears throat> I hear pages turning, music to my ears. I love it. So I'm just gonna read verses seven through 11, then we'll pray and then we'll we'll, uh, get into it here. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Uh, You saw fit uh, before you created Farmington to plan that there would be a church here in Farmington to bring you glory, and we trust that it has so far. And we want it to bring you glory today. We realize why we're here. We're here in the middle of this town, in the middle of this county here, to be an example and uh, proclaim your glory and draw men and women to you. And we recognize, Lord, that your word is a conduit for that. We recognize your word is a way to do that. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, uh, like any other Sunday or any other Wednesday that we gather together as we um, look to your word, we would magnify your word and magnify your name and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I just want to remind you that today is a special Sunday. It's Pentecost Sunday. Um, So, you know, you think we just went through the book of Acts for the better part of two years, and here we are um, 50 days outside of Easter, and uh, we're remembering when the Lord poured out His Spirit and birthed the church. And here you take about 120 people who obeyed what Jesus said, you, you go there and you just wait for the promise. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And as they were obedient and they met together in a prayer room and they prayed together, then out of that obedience came the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And there you have it, uh, the product of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. So this, this is Pentecost Sunday. Um, I, I, I've been kind of burning and resonating. I've had a fire in me about this subject matter today. Um, and it kind of coincides with the book of Acts because one of the themes you see in the book of Acts 
is this phrase that says, and the word of God increased. And not only do you see the word of God increase in Jerusalem, Judea, obviously the uttermost parts of the world, which, which by the way, has transformed the world, wouldn't you agree? Um, but also individually. Something happened on an individual basis first where the word of God increased um, in, in people's minds as a priority, uh, and also love and devotion, just passion for it as well. Um, I've kind of seen that. I've kind of seen that in this church here over the last couple of years, despite the shutdown, despite the pandemic, despite the, the regulations, uh, despite the fear that has kept people from church and gathering, what we've seen here is an increase in God's word because we have given out so many Bibles. I mean, I can't tell you how many Bibles we've given out. I can't tell you how many Bibles we've sold here in the bookstore. And I think that's rather remarkable. And every, every Monday, I think it's Monday, one of our ushers who's been here for the longest time, Daryl, he also does security for our school out there. And uh, almost every Monday, he's out there. He's breaking in new Bibles so that we can put them back in and replace the Bibles we gave away on a Sunday. So does everybody know how to break in a Bible? Yeah, you've all broken in your Bible? It's kind of fun, isn't it? Best way to break in a Bible is read it. That's the best way, right? Uh, there's not, I mean, I like a new Bible. I like a new Bible smell. Excuse me. Just, it's got, mine still has that new car smell, a new Bible smell. I like that. But it's nothing like a broken Bible and well-worn, too, where you know where things are and it, you own it, you know. Um, but whenever Pentecost happens... Pentecost event. And there's no other event like that Pentecost, don't get me wrong. But whenever there's a revival or awakening that happens worldwide, or maybe geographically in a locale, location, or individually, that's what ends up happening. There's a great, great increased value and priority on the word. Um, there's something connected with it. You, you cannot deny it. It happens all over the place. Um, an increased priority in a person's life, and an increased admiration. Uh, you remember the story of Josiah. He was one of the good kings. Uh, he, he didn't end up so well. Um, he, he made a mistake, but he, he started out really well as one of the better kings in Israel. But after a lot of years of just a, a disregard for God's word, and therefore a disregard of God, all of Israel had fallen into idolatry, um, it was, it was really, the nation had quite a bit changed. Uh, the temple had fallen into disarray. People just didn't care for the temple, uh, didn't want to keep it up and, and keep it as though it was the house of the Lord. Imagine this place here, the sanctuary, ceiling tiles falling down, holes in the roof, water damage, had, uh, no electricity, uh, maybe animals running through. Uh, it would be, be horrible after all these years to let it you know, become that. And so Josiah, he started to lead uh, sort of a reformation in the nation. He got rid of the idols and the false gods. And man, he did a good job. He did a great job. He had a zeal for the Lord. But um, one of the times his, his uh, partners, one of the priests, Hilkiah, I think he was a scribe, but he, he goes into the temple and he's looking around, rummaging through, and he finds a book and he comes back to Josiah and says, I found a book. And Josiah tells him, that's not just any book, that's the book. And so one of the things that's connected with Josiah's revival 
is finding the word of God and then a return to the word of God that would spread uh, to the nation here. So uh, it was more like a treasure that Hilkiah found, and it's a treasure to this uh, psalmist, David, who gives this psalm to the chief musician, so it's supposed to be a worship song. But if you're going to look at this psalm as a whole, you could break it down into thirds. The latter third speaks of David's great uh, need. Um, he has a great need, but also he has a great desire. And then the beginning portion of the psalm points to heaven, where the supply comes from, or the source, to meet the need. What we read today was the center section, and that's the conduit. That's the connector to get the supply to the great need. And that connector that David writes about is none other than God's Word, the Bible. So um, this, this connector here, God's Word, he understands the value here, is, is something that I want all of us to understand. And I have a very simple outline today when I talk about God's Word. I want to talk about its inspiration, its inerrancy, its sufficiency, and its authority. Let me say those again. It's inspiration, it's inerrancy, it's sufficiency, and it's authority. It's very important for us. So let's talk about inspiration. Uh, you'll notice in these verses the phrase, of the Lord, six times in five verses. Uh, verse 7, uh, of the Lord, uh, of the Lord, two times. Uh, verse 8, the statutes of the Lord. Uh, two times again, the commandment of the Lord. So over and over and over again, you see that David recognizes that it's his word. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. You know, David is the guy that wrote this stuff. You know, he actually penned this psalm. And didn't men just write the Bible? Well, yeah, men actually wrote the Bible. What David thinks and Peter thinks and Paul thinks and Jesus thinks is that God is the one who dictated it or the Holy Spirit is the one who dictated it. That's the idea that you see loud and clear throughout the Bible. Um, if you're writing notes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, coincides with this. 2 Peter 1, 21, Peter would say this, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, notice this, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is referencing specifically is, is prophecy. Moses was a prophet. Uh, Enoch was a prophet. David was a prophet. Solomon was a prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, you know, all those guys are prophets. And when he's talking about them speaking, he's not only talking about them speaking, but also the books that they authored. Um, so Peter pictures men as mere instruments for God to use and to record what he says to them. That's what we talk about when we mention the inspiration of the word. Uh, Paul believes the same thing. He agrees. You know, Paul and Peter had their little arguments, but, but Paul agrees. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's an important phrase. And is profitable. Anybody like profit more than debt? Couple, right? Especially Gene, yeah, he's a financial advisor. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I, think, I think we can all agree, everybody likes profit more than debt. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And there's an aim so that the man of God may be complete and also thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul believes all scripture is inspired. All of it is. Um, when he uses the, the phrase inspired by God, it's as though it, it's saying that God has breathed the word. And, and when we understand inspiration correctly, it's not just that he breathed it one time. We understand that he inspires it and breathes it as we read it, as, as though right now. So anytime you take in the word, anytime you hear it, or you read it, or I say it, or you say it, God is the one who anoints it because it's that powerful. Um, so I, I want you to understand a couple of things from that verse. Number one, all of Scripture is inspired. All of it is God-breathed. And it tells us, as Christians, we cannot be complete without the whole Bible. Let me read it again. That the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. That's the idea. Um, how about Jesus' view? This is real, really important. Jesus' view of Scripture is very high. Um, there are many times where he would say, have you not read? And oftentimes he would say that to believers, wouldn't he? He would say to Pharisees. These are the guys who are supposed to know the Bible, and yet he would say to them, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? And there are other times when he would say, do you not know what God has said? And oftentimes he would say those things interchangeably. Have you not read? It is written. Have you not known or heard what God has said? So Jesus believes that the written word is what God has said. Um, Sometimes, I don't have it in my notes here, but I, sometimes Jesus will use the word written or God's word where it makes sense to use God. And sometimes he will use the word God when it makes sense to use written or the Bible. You, know, you can look at that yourself, but he uses it interchangeably. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, this is really great. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Now, I have New King James. It says, for assuredly. Anybody have a, a King James? So King James says, verily. Sometimes it says, verily, verily. So when Jesus says, verily or assuredly in the Bible, modern vernacular is, yo, yo, look up. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> it means it's important, right? So he says, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So two real strange words, jot and tittle. What's a jot? A jot is the smallest, most insignificant letter in the Hebrew and the Greek alphabet. Sometimes it can look like an apostrophe. Um, 
but a most insignificant part of the alphabet that's used in the text of the Bible. Wait a minute, Jesus. Are, are you telling me that even apostrophes are anointed? Are you telling me that even that is significant, even that is God-breathed? Is that what you're telling me? And then he uses the word tittle. What's tittle? Tiny and little put together. That's the idea. But a tittle is even smaller than a jot. Um, I, I think the best way to describe it is if you, if you understand uh, word processing software like uh, Microsoft Word or used to be WordPerfect or something like that. But you're familiar with fonts, um, like Roman font, Courier font. Uh, on our website, we use Georgia font. Uh, but serif font or serif font, everybody heard of that? Uh, serif font on the longest stems have these tiny little strokes, you know, just to accentuate them. That would be a tittle in the Hebrew alphabet. And it could be the difference between one letter and another and make the difference between one word and another word if it just has that tittle on it, right? Or that little, no. If you have sans serif, it's without serif. It doesn't have those little tails on it. But it's very insignificant. And Jesus is saying this, for assuredly I say to you till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all has been fulfilled. Even the most seemingly insignificant portions of God's Bible are important and significant. And so when a person understands this about the Bible, that it is inspired and breathed by God, all of it, it changes things, doesn't it? It changes your perspective of it. It changes the value of it in a person's mind. And because it's from God, then we believe that the Bible is inerrant. And that moves me to the next subject matter. Let's talk about inerrancy. You'll notice in these verses... According to David, it says, uh, it is perfect, verse 7, sure, verse 7, verse 7, uh, right, verse 8, pure, verse 8, uh, and then verse 9, it says, clean, true, and righteous. So you, hey, wait a minute, Pastor Scott, you're pulling a fast one on us. Hey, wait a minute, verse 9 there, that, that's about the fear of the Lord. That's not actually the Bible. So I think you're kind of throwing that in there. Well, that's because the fear of the Lord, according to David, and I think from my own experience and many of your experiences, the fear of the Lord and the word of the Lord are inextricably connected. How else do you have a full appreciation of the fear of the Lord or respect for the Lord unless you read about what he does and who he is? So it's, 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 it's almost entirely impossible to pull the fear of the Lord out of the Bible there. So I think David is onto something because, because the Holy Spirit told him to write that and put it in there. So uh, it is uh, perfect, it is sure, uh, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true and righteous. When we talk about inerrancy, inerrancy really means without error. And so you might be saying, well, wait a minute. I, you know, I, I do know there's, there's some discrepancies in the Bible. There are some errors in the Bible, things like that. And obviously, when the Bible was first written, the original copies were written on what? They were used on skin or parchments. Uh, uh, Moses had it written on a rock, didn't he? 
on stone, stone tablets. Um, when we went through Numbers and Deuteronomy, they actually wrote the law as a memorial um, as they, before they got into the land there. So uh, obviously those parchments and those skins would wear out. They'd be used a lot. And there was no reason to really venerate the parchment or the skins. Nothing special about the skin of a goat, right? But the words that were on those parchments and those skins were to be preserved. And so uh, copies were made, originals were buried or burned, and occasionally the ink would be scraped off the parchment and then uh, rewritten uh, from a copy. So uh, we, we understand that there are copy errors down over the years, but I'll tell you this, no other, no other ancient manuscript has as many copies as the Bible does, and when you add up all of these copy errors, 99% of the time the copies agree, and the 1% that is wrong or incorrect does not have one significant impact on major doctrines of the Bible, doctrines of the Bible, or Christianity. So that, that's really important to understand. Uh, so when we talk about with it, without error, we're talking about what God has inspired or given in the original text here. Now, I would say this. There's a lot of churches and a lot of pastors. They'll come up here just like I do, and they'll carry a Bible, and they'll give you a Bible, and they'll say, open up the Bible, and we're going to find some truth in here. The idea is that the Bible contains truth. I'm saying no. It doesn't just contain truth. It is all truth. It has the truth. Um, and this is why we teach the Bible rather than teaching from the Bible. How many times have you heard me say that? I say it ad nauseum on Wednesday night. We're, I'm teaching you the Bible, not just, you know, okay, we're going to find something good in here. Okay, Oh, there's some good one right there, you know. We teach the Bible cover to cover. I teach you the culture. I teach you the language. Um, I throw maps up there so you know where not to get bit by a snake on Malta. <laughs> Hey, you can go to Malta. Just watch out for that snake there. You know, I, I teach you customs, uh, languages. I believe, and I think we need to have this high value of scripture that God knew what he was doing when he wrote it to put the names, the people, the places, the times in there, the symbolism in there for all generations. I think it's much more important for us to have Malta in our mind than Washington, D.C. <laughs> or Hollywood. I do. I think our minds were made to think those thoughts. Um, that's just, that's, um, I think it's important to understand that. So I'm teaching the Bible rather than just good principles for a, you know, a Sunday motivational speech or something like that. I want you to know your Bible. And let me, let me just tell you, every generation, every generation hits at the inerrancy of Scripture. This isn't anything new. John would write 1 John concerning heresy. Paul would write Colossians concerning heresy. It was because Gnosticism was creeping into the church. You get to the second century, here's Marcion. You know what he does? Here's the thing that happens every century. Oh, you know what? Uh, we need to help the Bible. We, we need to help it along because things have advanced so far. Nobody's going to believe the Bible anymore, so we need to kind of change it to help people and give the Bible credibility because nobody believes that stuff anymore. 
And that's what, that's what happened in the second century with regard to theology, just like when John wrote 1 John or Paul wrote Colossians, it can attack theology. But every generation, something comes along to attack the inerrancy of Scripture, and every time there's a heresy, then comes this, just this new kind of, uh, I would say, um, fortification of the church to teach this kind of thing, to shore up the church. And it's not just theologically that gets challenged, it's, it's intellectual challenges too. What was it when Darwin came along? All of a sudden people start, stop believing in, in uh, Genesis you know, 1 and 2 in creation. Oh my gosh, uh, gee, I, I can't really say that anymore because I'm going to be convinced I'm um, intellectually just, I'm not up with the times. And we have to give the Bible some credibility here. And in part, in large part, what, what people did, and I understand the question, they say, well, gee, how can God create plants and everything else before he creates the sun? The sun's created on day four. That doesn't make sense. So we have to figure out another way. But wait a minute, it's not a problem necessarily. You look at Revelation and you find out that light comes from Jesus himself in the new heavens and the new earth. We went through Acts in Acts chapter 9. When Paul gets saved, it's at noon. The sun is out in, in the middle of the Middle East, but he's blinded by another light, isn't he? That other light is Jesus Christ. So it's not necessarily a problem, but there's an attack on our intellectual credibility. Don't let that happen to you. And if it's not theologically or intellectually, it can be historical. The child, well, I don't know. I don't know if you can believe that Bible with the history. And I've done other Sunday mornings on all the archaeological evidence that always proves the Bible right. Just when we think, well, oh, no, there wasn't a David or there wasn't a Daniel and things like that. Um, have you ever heard of James Usher? You ever heard of him? James Usher, he was a, a leader in the church, lived 350 years ago in the 1600s. And in the 1600s, he just used copies of the Bible, 11th century manuscripts. This is long before archaeology. This is long before we knew anything about Assyrian languages. Assyrian languages we knew about 200 years ago. So this is 150 years before that happened, long before archaeology. He just takes the 11th century manuscripts, and he can determine by the Bible the year that Tiglath-Pileser, an Assyrian king, died. And he came up with 728. Now, after, after all this archaeological discovery, after all we know of Syrian languages, we figure he was off by one year. And those 11th century manuscripts were 800 years old. Remarkable, isn't it? I just think, man, that guy was smart. What'd I do with my brain? <laughs> He's really smart. So theologically, intellectually, historical, and now more than ever, you know what the challenge is to the Bible? It's a moral challenge. It's a moral challenge. There's a whole new sexual revolution. You believe that God made marriage, and you believe that God made marriage for one man and one woman? Oh my gosh, the, the Bible's immoral. And you're immoral, and you're a hater. That's a new challenge, isn't it? And Christian, you better be ready to take that. 
If you believe that that is inerrant, if you believe that this is inspired by God, you better be able to take that hit. And it's going to get worse, I think. But now there's a new moral challenge to it. I mean, honestly, I mean, you could, you could read of things that God had done in the Old Testament. We're going through it in Joshua. And maybe that'll be challenged. As a mor- that, is that morally acceptable that God would have them do that to the Canaanites? Either it is God's word or it isn't. You've got to ask that question. And I would say this, that the Bible is complete. In Deuteronomy, God told Moses, don't add to it, don't take away from it. In Revelation, just in case we thought it was only for the Old Testament, (laughs) God tells John, don't add from it, don't take away from it. And Jesus himself, when he spoke of the scripture, he said, the scripture cannot be broken or broken up. That's the idea. We have to take it as a whole. And so from time to time, when people decide, well, uh, I can believe this part, but I can't believe that part. Well, I believe this is inspired, but I don't believe that's inspired. You know what ends up happening? Then we, all of a sudden, become the authority of the word, rather than the word becoming the authority over us. Does that make sense? If I get to pick and choose what's inspired or what's inerrant, then now I have supplanted the Bible. So it's either all God's inerrant word or none of it. So what's it good for? What it's good for is everything and anything. It's all sufficient. All sufficient. Notice verse 7. Converting the soul. Uh, making wise the simple. Verse 8, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. Man, that sounds like an infomercial to make you a young person again. <laughs> enlightening the eyes. Okay, take your glasses off. You know, Take my hearing aids out. Uh, it's something. Converting the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. So the Bible itself swears to its adequacy far superior over man's philosophy or theories, far superior over man's view of our reality, it speaks of its own capacity. It is capable, and it alone has the ability like nothing else or no one else. If you're taking notes, write down Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. A lot of you know this verse, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. It says this, For the word of God is living. Do you believe that it's alive? Do you have that view of it? Because that's what the Bible says. It's alive. It's not dead. People have tried to kill it, haven't they? They've tried to kill it. It's not dead. It's alive. And it's powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul, spirit, and the joints and marrow. Now, the word piercing means it can penetrate a three-dimensional space. But notice how the Bible tells us this. Piercing even to the division of soul, spirit, and joints and marrow of the body. Because the Bible is the only one who has the proper view of a human being. 
that we are soul, spirit, and body. Modern medical advancement in theory and knowledge today doesn't see those things right. Doesn't have the right view of human beings. So piercing or penetrating this three-dimensional space, soul, spirit, and body, and I like this, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is alive and it can read your mind. It's the only book that can read the people that are reading it. Let me read it again. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It knows exactly how we think. It knows exactly how we're wired. It knows exactly what our intentions and motives are, and it can decipher those things and then tell us and correct us or encourage us. Isn't that something? It's powerful that way. Sometimes I have people, you know, they can tell what I'm thinking. I say, get out of my head. <laughs> but the Bible does this all the time. It is sufficient to diagnose and cure our souls. How do destructive people become constructive? How do out-of-control people become self-controlling? How do selfish people become other-centered? How do foul-mouthed people get their tongue tamed? How does an anxious person become peaceful and restful? How does a depressed person, this is more close to home, how does a depressed person climb out and find joy, purpose, and meaning? Let me tell you, let me tell you a little bit of my testimony. Some of you know it, some of you don't, but... At one point in time, I was clinically depressed. I was suicidal. I, couldn't bar I could barely function. They told me I was always going to be that way. There wasn't any hope for me. You would tell me something, and five seconds later, I would forget what you tell me. That's how shot I was. So I'm very sympathetic to depression and suicidal thoughts and all that. But I can tell you there wasn't anything a human being could tell me that was fixing me and helping me. And my dad, I was living with some friends down there um, by the lake, and my dad was praying for me and fasting for me, and he would, he would call from time to time and send me scriptures. And man, I, just, I couldn't wait for him to call because I knew that the power was in the scriptures, and I knew that he heard from the Lord. So when he would send me a scripture, I would write it down because I knew five seconds later I was going to forget it. I was so mentally shot and emotionally shot. And, um, and so, you know, I would keep reading these things that I would write down, write all these scriptures. And, and I can tell you that just like that demoniac who was out of his mind, I can tell you that it was the word of God that healed me and made me whole. So just like Job, you know, Job said this. He says, your words, I have, I have desired your words more than my necessary food. And it's true. So somebody says, well, I just, man, I'm just so anxious, I'm so nervous, I'm so scared, I'm so fearful. Listen, I understand that. But I'm telling you, it's the word that did it for me. It's the scriptures. How does a covetous, lust-filled person become content and lust-free? It's the scripture. So this is the thing, this, this is the word, uh, the book, that can actually change what we desire and what we want and what we long for. I don't know if you know that about Jesus, but what he wants to do is change what you long for. 
You know, when we first meet Jesus Christ, you know, okay, Lord, give me this, give me that, you know. And he does. He is, he's like a father. He pities us, and he wants to please us and bless us and those kinds of things. But there's a certain point where you, you get past that, and you read the word long enough, and, and you realize, oh, no, no, no. Um, what I want is not as good as what he wants. And he changes what we want. So it is sufficient, but you must believe it for it to be sufficient. You have to put faith in action. You know, like children of Israel. They died in the wilderness because they didn't mix faith with the word. Remember that? The promises were there. They're there for the taking. But if they don't believe the promises, Jesus says, I will give you peace. Not as the world gives, peace give I to you. So when I tell you my testimony and I'm telling you Jesus can give you peace, you might be thinking, yeah, but... Yeah, but you don't know my situation. Yeah, mine's different. Well, I'm just... You have to mix it with faith. It's not sufficient just for me. It's sufficient for everyone. So when you mix it with faith, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I, I believe you, that you can do it. Well, that's when it's realized. So, if it's sufficient, if it's inerrant, uh, if it's inspired, then it must have authority over our lives. Agreed? No logical sequence? Let's talk about authority here. I, I would say this. Any time that you hear down through the ages when the church has to kind of make a statement of faith, different councils and things like that, they have said this and say, all of Christianity is based on the fact that the Bible is the final authority in doctrine and practice. Doctrine is what we believe. Practice is how we live, right? So talk the talk, walk the walk. Be a hearer and a doer of the word. So it's the final authority in all doctrine and Practice And it must be the final authority on our worldview, our view of the world. Um, anybody heard of Barna? George Barna? George Barna does all kinds of studies on the church, um, belief systems, what Christians believe, how they live. He also does studies on the world, too, on believers, what they believe and how they live, etc. But he did one last year that was interesting. Uh, he interviewed all these Christians you know, go to church, have a Bible. And he found out that only 6% have a biblical worldview. Wow, 6%. That's not very many, is it? That's it's horrible. Um, and he asked a question during this, uh, this uh, study, and he said, uh, do you think God cares about what you think and what you do in every aspect of your lives, and 78% said, yes, God cares a lot. He cares what we think, he cares what we do, how we live. And yet only 6% actually live the biblical Christian life. And he found out that most were interested in living a life of convenience and comfort rather than one consistent with the Bible. Wow, that's saying something. So it means people can come to church, say, I believe the Bible, but they don't live that worldview. 
So it must have the final authority on the way you live your life and the way I live my life. It must be supreme. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, but Pastor Scott, you know, tell me why you, you revere the Bible so much and love the Bible so much. Well, give me a few hours. <laughs> but if I, could, if I could sum it up and boil it down into one word, I would say, I would say cohesion. I love the way it brings cohesiveness to everything in life. I love the way it puts things together. I love the way how everything makes sense with the Bible. You know, my crazy thoughts end up making sense. Thoughts about the world, how it interprets the world, things that are happening in the world, things that are happening in my marriage, in my home, Things are happening in our state. Things are happening in the church. I mean, it really describes everything. I look out at nature. I look out at the, at the world or the stars or the universe. I, I look at physics even. Uh, anybody like physics? I don't understand them. I like them. <laughs> but then I look at them you know, with the Bible, and everything seems to make sense through the Bible. So cohesion is the one big thing. It's sort of like what C.S. Lewis said about Christianity. C.S. Lewis said this about Christianity. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I can see it, but because in its light I see everything else. I believe in the Bible like I believe in the sun, not just because I can read it, but in its light I see everything else very clearly. Notice verse 10 and 11 here. We'll close with this. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. More by them, moreover by them, your servant is worn, and in keeping them there is great reward. And you know what that reward is? It's God Himself. Just like He told Abraham Abraham, I am your great, exceeding reward. And that's the whole aim. So I ask you today, I ask every one of you, whether you're here or listening on the radio or uh, on the internet, um, does it have that supreme value in your life for all aspects of what you believe and how you live? Does it have authority? Because wherever there is revival, no matter what, that's what ends up happening the value of the scripture. Now, I have a pastor's pick in there, and um, don't think that I arranged this. I had nothing to do with it. But it's a book on revival. So I didn't know how these weeks were going to line up. You can tell it's from the Holy Spirit, okay? So don't blame me. <laughs> but I encourage you to get that book. Take a look at that second great awakening that happened. It's just incredible. And let's pray that you know, we'd have another great revival and awakening in America. And people would just come to church like you, open up that Bible, tell me how to live. Tell me what to do. You know, tell me what to do in my marriage. Tell me what to do in my, my home. Tell me what to do on the job. You know, tell me what's going on in my heart. Because I know the Bible has the answers. Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for all the promises that are in your word that have meant so much to us, more than gold, Lord, more than rubies, such a treasure. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the times where we know that, as we're reading it, nobody else, nobody else knows what's going on inside of us, but you do. Just affirms again that your word is inspired and it's alive and, and reads us, interprets us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that if there's one thing that's never going to fail, it's this Bible, it's this book, it's your words. I'll endure forever and ever and ever. People need something to count on, Lord. People need something to hope on. People need something to, to hang on, to, to keep them above water, and, and that's where your word comes in. And I pray, Lord, today you've been honored and glorified as we've magnified your word and elevated your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that more people will put their faith in it and treasure it as you do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 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 All right. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Scott Gallatin. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Scott's ministry by visiting www.ccfingerlakes.org.